Well, good morning. Thank you, Shama, for that great time of worship this morning. And aren't you glad that the God of angel armies is always by our side and he is a friend of ours? Have your Bible turn to James chapter 2 this morning. We're going to continue our walk through the book of James, continue the series that's called A Faith That Works. And this morning, we're going to look at a key passage in the book of James. The passage we're going to look at is foundational to everything else that James says. And so far, James has talked about overcoming trials. He's talked about what true religion looks like. He's talked about doing the word and controlling our tongues and caring for those in need and not playing favorites. And if we're going to do all that James says we need to do, we must not just have faith, but we must have a faith that is alive and a faith that is working and a faith that is not dead. There's a story of a nun. She worked for a home health care agency and she was out making her rounds and she ran out of gas. But thankfully there was a gas station that wasn't too far down the street, so she walked down to the gas station to borrow a gas can so she could get just enough gas to put in her car to drive to the gas station to fill up. Well, she walked into the gas station. The attendant told her, I just loaned out my last gas can. I don't have any more. So being resourceful, she walked back to a car and she remembered that she had a bedpan there that she was going to use for her next patient. You've heard this, hadn't you? All right, I'll continue. But she walked, she walked back to the gas station, filled up the bedpan. She went back to a car and started putting gas in her car. There were these two gentlemen that walked by and saw what she was doing. And one said to her, she said, Sister, that is what I call faith. <laughs> You'll get that later, maybe. So, all right. Uh, but these men desired to have the faith that this nun had. And when people look at our life, they should deserve to have the faith that you have and that I have. But in order to have this kind of faith, we have to understand what real faith is. Because real faith is just not believing. Real faith is not passive. Real faith is active. And once we put our faith in Christ, and once we trust Christ, we should put our faith into action. And if we want to have a faith that works, we must have a faith that works. And as we go through this passage this morning, I want you through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to determine whether your faith is dead or whether your faith is alive. Let's read James chapter 2, starting in verse 14 and going through verse 26. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, if it doesn't have works, in the same way if it doesn't have, in the same way faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works his faith was perfected. 
So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. It was credited to him for righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This morning, I want to share with you what real faith is not and what real faith is. The first thing I want to say is, is faith is more than a verbal profession. Faith is more than a verbal profession. In verse 14, James says, What good is it if you have faith but not works? And that word works or deeds, it means actions done in obedience to God. And remember, James is talking to Christians who say they put their faith in Christ. So James is not saying we need to add works to our faith in order to be saved. But what he is saying is that works should be the fruit of our faith. He's saying that works are not required for salvation, but works should be the result of our salvation. And then he asks a rhetorical question at the end of verse 14. He says, can this faith, meaning a faith that has no works, save him? And the answer to that rhetorical question is absolutely not. James is making it very clear that it is the right kind of faith that saves. It is a faith that has works. It is a faith that is characterized by obedience to God. This is genuine faith. This is real faith. And this kind of faith will produce fruit. However, if there is no fruit, then the logical conclusion must be there's no faith at all. How do you know that an apple tree is an apple tree? Because it produces apples. You see, if an apple tree produces oranges, it's not what it said it was. If an apple, uh, apple tree produces no apples at all, it's considered dead. You see, in the same way, our works, our acts done in obedience to God prove that we have put our faith in God and if they don't, our faith is dead. Because what is on the outside gives credence to what is on the inside. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15 and reading to verse 20. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by your fruit. Jesus makes it very clear that the evidence of whether or not we have true faith is, is lived out in our lives. He says a good tree does not produce bad fruit, and a bad tree does not produce good fruit. If you are a follower of Christ, then your life should show that you are a follower of Christ. And someone may ask, can people do works and, and not be saved? The answer is yes. Continue reading in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus answers this question. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I'll announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So it is possible 
for someone to do works for God and not be saved by God. You see, someone may ask that question. Someone may say, well, I'm doing all this for God. But the real question is, have you come to the point where you've trusted God with your life? And that's what James is saying is once we trust God with our lives and verbally acknowledge him and verbally profess him, then our life should show that we have made that verbal profession. And remember the context. James is writing to believers. James is not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers, those who've claimed they put their faith in God. And if someone has put their faith in God, James is saying it should be evident in how they are living their life in obedience to God. And in verse 15 and 16, he gives an example of what a verbal profession looks like. He talks about a fellow believer who has no food and who has no clothes. He's in dire need. And then he gives the response of another believer. The believer who sees this need of this man says, Go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed. In other words, what he's saying, I wish you well. I'll pray for you. May God be with you. He offers a prayer, but he does nothing else to meet the need of that man. And this is the point James is making. If all you do is pray over them and wish them well and do nothing to meet their need, what good is your faith? What good does only words do for someone in need? And the answer is nothing. And when we as believers fail to provide for an obvious need, not only do we hurt the one in need, but it also calls into question the spiritual state of the one who fails to act upon the need. One commentator I read said this, he said, words of an uncaring believer who fails to act to help someone in need are as useless as the profession of faith of a believer who does not have works. You see, we shouldn't help those in need because we have to. We should help those in need because we want to. We should be compelled by the love of God and the mercy of God. And we remember when we minister to the least of these, those who are forgotten, those who are lonely, those who are helpless, when we minister to those people, we are ministering to Christ himself and that our acts of mercy are evidence of the mercy we have received from God. And what James is doing is referring back to what we talked about last week in James 2.13, where basically James says, if we want to have mercy shown to us, we need to show mercy to others. You see, our works and our actions, they must support our words. And if our words are not supported by our actions, then others have the right to question our commitment to Christ. You see, when all we give is lip service, it does nothing to provide credence to the claim that we've put our faith in God. What if I told my wife that I love you, but then I did nothing for her? What if I never spent time with her? What if I never took her anywhere? What if I never bought her a gift? You know what would happen? Well, one, I wouldn't be here. But she would question my love for her. She would question my commitment to her. And so would others. And she would have every right to do that because my words without action would be meaningless. Let's take it a step further. What if Jesus would have said, I really do love you. I'm here for you. I give my peace to you. But you know what? I'm not so sure about this cross thing. I think I'm going to forgo the cross. His words would do us no good. And we would still be hopeless 
and lost. It's the same in our relationship with God. If you say you love God, then you will show that you love him, not just by your words, but also by your actions. And if you say you love God and put your faith in God, but your life doesn't show it, God is going to question your commitment to him, and so are others. Tim Keller wrote this in one of his books. He said, mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of a Christian that it can be used as a test of the faith. Mercy is not optional or an addition to being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is a sign of genuine faith. Faith is more than words. Faith is more than a verbal profession. It's what we say and what we do. And if our faith is only defined by our words and not by our works, we really don't have faith at all. And James says our faith is dead. In fact, in verse 17, James says, Faith by itself without works is a faith that does not work. So faith is more than a verbal profession. The second point, faith is more than an intellectual assertion. Verse 19 James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. You see, when James says God is one, he is speaking to the unity of God. And he knew that every Jew believed this statement. It is from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, where, where it's written, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he knew that every Jewish believer would know that verse, would know that about God. But then James lays down the hammer. He said, guess what? So do the demons, and they shudder. Why do they shudder? Because it could be a reaction of fear provoked by God because they know the power of God. It could be because they fear the judgment to come, or it could be both. But James is driving home a point. He's saying, your faith is dead, and at least the demons display some kind of reaction to their faith. And just as the demons believe in God, yet they lack true faith and shudder and tremble in fear of judgment, so should those whose faith is not followed by action. You know, this reminds me of someone who can get on to you without really getting on to you, but after they're finished, you feel about that small. They haven't gotten angry, they haven't said an inappropriate word, but you know after they were done that you were in trouble. I had some teachers like that. They could get on to us and get on to us, not say a word, but we know that they were really upset. My mom was good at that. After a few talkings, uh, my mom was, was really good at not really getting upset, but she, we knew when we were in trouble. And this is the tone that James is setting with these Jewish Christians. He's letting them know that, that faith is more than an intellectual assertion. He is telling his readers and his demons at, that the demons have a theology. Did you know that the demons have a theology? The demons believe a lot of the things we believe. The demons believe in the existence of God. The demons believe God is one. The demons believe in the deity of Christ. The demons believe Jesus died and rose again. They believe heaven and hell are real. They believe Jesus saves. But James is making the point that it's not enough to have head knowledge of God. You see, it's not enough to recognize that God is real. It's not enough to know that God is real. It's not enough to believe that God is real because there are many people who think that if they believe these things about God and his word, that they are right with God. 
And that's just not the case. Just because you believe things in the Bible doesn't mean you're right with God. Just because you believe in the acknowledgement and the existence of God does not mean you're right with God. That was me as you heard my testimony last week. I had intellectual knowledge of God and his word, but that was not enough. You see, intellectual knowledge of God is not going to change your life. The only thing that's going to change your life is you allow God to change your heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the story is told of a, a great circus performer by the name of Blondine who stretched a long steel cable across Niagara Falls. And during high winds and, and without a safety net, he would walk or run this, uh, this wire. He would run across this wire and even danced across this wire, this tightrope. And the crowd was amazed as they watched him do these things. And once he decided to take a wheelbarrow full of bricks and, and he amazed the crowd by pushing it effortlessly across this, this tightrope. And then he turned to the crowd and he asked this. He said, now how many of you believe that I could push a man across this tightrope in this wheelbarrow? The vote was unanimous. Everyone raised their hands and said they believed it. But then he asked this, would one of you please volunteer to be that man? As quickly as the hands went up, the hands went down. Not a single person wanted to volunteer to ride in that wheelbarrow and to trust his life to Blondie. Many people say, yes, I believe in God. But it's not enough to say you believe in God. You must prove you believe in God. It must be evident in your life. You must be willing to get in that wheelbarrow and trust your life into his hands. But for one, just have knowledge of God means they are no better off than the demons. Because faith is not what you think. Faith is not what you feel. Faith is what we do after we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if all we do is listen to the word and read the word and talk about the word or feel a certain way about the word and not do the word, our faith is dead. And our faith without works is no different from the faith of demons. You see, we must know God and we must show we believe in him by giving our life to him and living for him. And we must understand that faith is not just an intellectual exercise. The third point where I'm going to spend the remainder of the time is telling you what faith is. It's not a verbal profession. It's not an intellectual assertion. Faith is a commitment to action. Verse 18 James writes, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. That word show, it means to prove, it means to demonstrate. And James is saying, prove to me you have faith without works and I will prove to you I have faith from my works. And this is a very intriguing argument that James lays out because he's making it very clear that faith and works cannot be separated. You cannot have one without the other. And James knows that no one can prove they have faith, that there is no evidence of their faith in their lives because their faith is dead and their faith is useless. And he says in verse 20, anyone who thinks otherwise, who thinks they can show someone their faith without works, he says in verse 20, is foolish. He says, foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? 
One who claims to have faith without works has an empty faith. In reality, they have nothing at all. And what we need to understand is that works without faith is of no value. And so is faith without works. You see, without works, we cannot demonstrate our faith. However, we can prove we have faith by what we do. And to prove his point, he gives two examples from the Old Testament. He gives the example of Abraham and Rahab. And in verses 21 through 24, it's one of the most difficult passages about salvation in the New Testament. Why the difficulty? Because if you compare James 2.24 with Romans 3.28, you will see the tension that could come from just looking at these two passages on the surface. In Romans 3.28, this is what Paul wrote. We conclude a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But James in 2.24, you see, he says, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So how do we reconcile this perceived tension and this perceived contradiction between, between James and Paul? There is one reason Martin Luther called James a straw letter. This is why Martin Luther said that Jimmy should be thrown in the stove. His words, not mine. It's nothing to do with James. I mean, he had wondered nothing to do with James because he was reading James through the eyes of Paul and he thought James was contradicting Paul. And Luther's contention was that James contradicted Paul on the issue of salvation of faith and works because he interpreted James as saying that works can lead to faith in Christ when James wrote faith without works is not faith at all. You see, Luther thought James was advocating a works-based salvation while Paul advocated a faith-based salvation. But this is not the case at all. There is no contradiction between James and Paul. In fact, they do not contradict each other. They complement each other. And they would agree completely with what the other one wrote. And for one thing, we need to keep in mind that James was written well before Paul began writing. James was written in the 80s, 40s. Paul didn't start writing till the mid to late 50s. So to try to read James through the eyes of Paul is probably not sound theology. Another thing is James and Paul were writing about the same gospel. They believed in the same God. They believed in the same Jesus. But they had different vantage points. They were addressing different issues. Paul was fighting against the idea that salvation could be earned by works. Paul's emphasis is on how one gets into the Christian life, which is not works, but by faith. James was fighting against what's been called easy believism or, or quietism or having a passive belief in reducing salvation to an intellectual belief about God. And James is writing to Christians about how they should live the Christian life after giving their life to Christ. And unfortunately, these same battles are being fought today. Because there are many who think they can work their way to God. There are many who think if all they do is do good works that they'll be okay in the eyes of God. And others think that all they need to do is to say a prayer and that's all that's needed. That works don't matter, that obedience is optional. And unfortunately, I would have to say that the church has been culpable in some of this. What do I mean by that? Well, we say it's easy to come to Christ. And it is easy. You walk down the aisle, you say a prayer, you acknowledge you give your life to Christ. You acknowledge that you believe who Jesus is and what he did, and that's great, but it doesn't stop there. 
Coming to Christ is easy, but walking with Christ is difficult. And real faith is just not about coming to Christ, but it's about walking with Christ and living for Christ. And in this passage, James is not debating the issue of entering into a relationship with God. This is assumed as he is writing to Christians. But instead, what James is doing, he's making it very clear that truth, that true faith in Christ will result in obedience to Christ. And understanding James and Paul, it hinges on this one word, justified. Justified. Because that word justified, it can mean different things depending on the context. There are words we use in our English language that are different depending on the context. For example, the word engaged. Someone can be engaged to marry. You can be engaged in conversation. You can be engaged in battle. It's the same word, but it has a different meaning depending on the context. And this is the case with the word justified. It has to be read in context. And in Romans 3.28, when, when Paul wrote that it is our faith that justifies us and not our works, when he uses the word justified... He's referring to what is called initial justification or positional righteousness. What, James, or what Paul is referring to is the verdict of innocence that's pronounced on a person the moment they give their life to Christ. Paul is referring to the moment you give your life to Christ that you are made right with God and you are made right before God and you are given the righteousness of God. Why does Paul say that? Ephesians 2.8 You are saved by grace. It's not by your works. He said you're not saved by your works because he doesn't, God doesn't want anyone to boast. It is the gift of God that allows us to come into a relationship with him. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul wrote, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is concerned about our initial standing before God. But for James... Remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians who've already put their faith in God. James is referring to final justification. His readers, he says, already have this idea of initial justification. They've already been made right with God by putting their faith in God. So when he uses the word justified, he's talking about final justification or what's been called practical righteousness. It's the verdict announced on a person's life at the last judgment. You see, James is concerned how we live our lives before God. In 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, this is what Paul wrote. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved, and it will be like an escape through fire. Paul is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. When we stand before God, and we're going to be judged by what we did or did not do. And guess what James is talking about when he uses the word justification? Talking about that final judgment when we stand before God and our works are judged and they're tried by fire. And James says, if all your, or Paul says, if all your works are burned up, it will be lost, but you're still going to be saved because you have that initial justification in Christ. You see, when we as a sinner enter into a right relationship with God by faith, when we trust in God, 
the ultimate validation of this relationship will take into account the works we do when we stand before God and we'll be judged on what we did and not do and we'll be rewarded accordingly. And these two understandings of the word justified are not separate from each other. These two words go together. James is not saying works lead to salvation. James is saying our salvation should lead to works. And guess what? That's exactly what Paul wrote throughout his letters. Galatians 5, 6, Paul wrote, only, only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith expressing itself, guess what? That's works. That's what James talks about here. Ephesians 2.10, we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The Paul wrote that. Philippians 2.12, Paul wrote, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So I hope you see that James and Paul do not contradict each other. They complement each other. And the word justified they use is different because of the context in which they're writing. And they both would agree that if we are declared righteous before God, we should desire to live a righteousness for God. And this is exactly what James says Abraham and Rahab did. You see, James gives us two examples from the Old Testament of people who lived out their faith. And as we look at these examples, I want you to keep in mind what James meant by the word justify. Yes, it's different from Paul, but in no way does it contradict Paul. By using Abraham first, James is striking a chord with the Jewish Christians because as we know, Abraham's a father of Judaism, father of Christianity. He makes a specific reference to Abraham's life. And through the life of Abraham, James wants the Jewish Christians to whom he is writing and us to see what happens when our faith is real, when our faith is active, when our faith is alive. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, What is Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Then he says in 22, You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In verse 21, he specifically mentions the offering of Isaac, which can be found in Genesis chapter 22. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only, his, not his only son, but, but his main son, Isaac, who was going to be his heir, asked him to sacrifice him up on the mountain. So Abraham was obedient to God. He took his son in Genesis chapter 22. He was about to sacrifice him. And when he laid him down on that rock on that altar, and he raised that knife to slit his throat, it says an angel of the Lord stopped his hand and told him, Abraham, you've been obedient. I don't want you to kill Isaac. That was a test of Abraham's faith. That was a test of Abraham's willingness to obey God. God called on Abraham to offer his son Isaac, and Abraham was willing to do it. And the works that Abraham did throughout his life, including the test of Isaac, it, it did not cause him to have faith in God. It was a result of his faith in God. 
which actually occurred in Genesis 15, 6, where it says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 is what Paul would call the initial justification of Abraham. That's the moment he gave his life to God. And that's the moment he said, I'm willing to follow God. I'm willing to be committed to God. And it says, Abraham believed the Lord and was credited to him for righteousness. And because he was obedient to God, and because his faith was active, he was justified before God. That's what James would call his final justification. So you remember when James uses the word justify, he's referring to vindication at the final judgment, not the initial act of one giving their life to Christ. And James is saying because of how Abraham lived out his faith, God will give Abraham his stamp of approval at the last judgment and something else happened because Abraham lived out his faith not only was he justified but in according to verse 22 it says his faith was perfected you see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was perfected because his faith and actions were working together his faith was made complete by what he did Abraham's faith went much further than an intellectual acknowledgement of God Abraham's faith was more than lip service. It was more than a verbal profession. His faith was authentic. And his faith reached its intended goal when he did what God asked him to do. Reminds me of Matthew 5, 48, when Jesus said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect means to strive to be perfect like God is perfect. Because we know we can't be perfect just like God is, but that word perfect means to strive to be perfect. And that's exactly what Abraham did. He strived to be perfect. And that's how his faith was perfected. You see, the only way to mature in our faith, the only way to perfect our faith, the only way for us to become who God wants us to be is by doing what he asks us to do. Otherwise, we will never grow. Otherwise, our faith will never be made complete. And we will still be babies in Christ. 1 Peter 2, 2, Peter wrote, Like newborn infants desire the unadulterated spiritual milk so, uh, for themselves so that you may grow by it in your salvation. He says, Like newborn infants Desire the unadulterated spiritual milk of the word so you may grow in your salvation. What is he saying? He's saying when we first receive Christ, we are a spiritual infant. But as we take in the milk of the word, we grow to the point where we can eat and we can digest the meat of the word. And when we digest the meat of God's word, it means we take it in and it causes us to grow. It causes us to mature in our faith. And we desire to be obedient to God and his word and, upon, and act upon what we hear and read. You see, if we desire to grow up in our faith, our faith must be accompanied by works. Our faith must be alive. And not only was Abraham justified, not only was his faith perfected, but in verse 23 it says, he was found righteous. It says the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Referring to Genesis 15, 6. Abraham completely trusted in God. He fully believed that God would do what he said. 
Because in Genesis 15, 4 and 5, this is what God promised Abraham, that he would have an heir or a son whose name was Isaac and an offspring that would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And Abraham believed that. And God said, because you believe me, I'm crediting it to you as righteousness. You see, God's response to Abraham's faith is he was found righteous before God. He was found right in the eyes of God. And when Abraham put his faith in God, God gave him right then and there a right relationship with him before he had done good works. However, God expected Abraham to follow through on his commitment and live a life of obedience to him. And that's exactly what Abraham did. Verse 23, it says the scripture was fulfilled. What is that talking about? What's that mean? What's that referring to? James is not saying what happened in Genesis 15, 6 was fulfilled in Genesis 22. He, if he did that, he would be saying that, that works must be added to faith in order to obtain salvation. That's not what James is saying at all. The word fulfill in this context, it means to fill up. It means to bring to ultimate significance. So through Abraham's life of obedience, his initial faith that he put in God found its ultimate significance and meaning through his works. Let me try to bring this all together. I know it's a lot. You see, the moment Abraham put his faith in God, he was made right with God. But Abraham's faith was filled up. Abraham's faith was perfected and given its ultimate significance when he perfected his faith through his works. And his faith will be vindicated and will be given God's final approval at the final judgment. You see, it's no different with us. When we come to the point where we put our faith and trust in God, at that very moment, we are made right with God. Our sins are forgiven and we are able to enter into a relationship with him. But when we put our faith in God, God expects us to follow him. God expects us to be like him. God expects us to live up to our commitment to him. God expects us to mature in our faith. And it's only when we allow our faith to be lived out in our lives that our faith will reach its ultimate significance. But when we don't live out our faith, our faith is meaningless. Our faith is dead. And James says we might as well say we don't have any faith at all. What good does it say? What good does it for us to say we have faith if we have no intention of living out our faith? You know, we can say all we want that we want to be obedient to God. But the question is, does our life show it? We can say all we want that we want to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But is our life showing it? We can say all we want that we want unity in the body of Christ. But do our actions show it? We can say all we want that we love others. But do our actions prove it? You see, we can say whatever we want. But we, what we say doesn't matter if we do nothing about it. See, God expects more than lip service. God expects action. And only when our faith is active will we be found righteous and receive God's final approval at the last judgment where our works will be tried by fire. There's something else that happened to Abraham because of his faith. 
says in verse 23, because of his faith and obedience, God called him friend. What an incredible thing as we sang this morning for God to be able to call us friend. What an incredible thought. You know what? Jesus gave us the definition of what a friend does in John 15, 14. He says, you are my friend. Listen to this next part. If you do what I command you to do. Jesus put a condition on friendship. Jesus said, you show me that you are my friend if you do what I command you to do. Jesus didn't say, you are my friend if you verbally acknowledge that I exist. Jesus didn't say, you're my friend if you do all these good things but you haven't put my, your faith in me. Jesus says, you are my friend if you do what I command you to do. Abraham's life is a supreme example of what it means to have friendship with God. Why? Because Abraham trusted God wholeheartedly. He trusted God wholeheartedly, and that's what God wants us to do with our faith. He wants to trust Him wholeheartedly. Not part of the time, not some of the time, not depending on what's going in our lives, but all the time. That's what it means to have a faith that is real and a faith that is active and a faith that matters is trusting God wholeheartedly. How many of us would be willing to take our children and sacrifice them on a mountain? Don't answer that. You might be wanting to do that this morning, but don't, don't answer that. But it would be hard for us to take our child, to take them to a mountain, to lay them on an altar, to tie them to that altar and to raise a knife and with the intention of slitting their throat. That's what Abraham was willing to do. He trusted God wholeheartedly and he trusted God sacrificially. He let nothing stand in the way of him acting upon God's calling. If you want to be God's friend, like Abraham, Jesus says, you have to obey my command. You have to trust him wholeheartedly and you have to trust him sacrificially. And when we truly put our faith in God, when we're obedient to God, we will be called a friend of God. The second example he gives is Rahab. Rahab comes from Joshua chapter 2. Probably a familiar story to many of us. Joshua succeeded Moses. Joshua was the one that God called to conquer the land of Canaan. God called them to conquer the city of Jericho. But before they went in to conquer it, Joshua sent two spies to go, to go spy out the land, to get the lay of the land. Those two spies were hidden by a prostitute named Rahab. Rahab hid them. Rahab protected them. And then she helped them escape by lowering them on a rope. And because of her actions, because of her faith in God, all her and her household was saved when Jericho was conquered in Joshua chapter 6. Why Rahab? Well, Rahab was a Gentile woman. Rahab, as James says, and Scripture says, was a prostitute. But she came to the place where she feared God. She came to the place where she believed God. In Joshua 2.11, she says, The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. 
She was a heroine to the Jews. She was a model of faith as well because she put her life and the lives of her family on the line for God's cause. And like Abraham, she was considered righteous because of what she did. And like Abraham, she's in the, hall, the faith hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. By using Abraham and Rahab, James is giving us a direct contrast to the one whose faith is dead in verses 14 to 17. And James is implying that anyone is capable of placing his or her faith in God and acting on that faith, whether a patriarch like Abraham or a prostitute like Rahab. You see, who we are and where we come from is not what's most important to God. What's most important to God is the condition of our faith. And in verse 26, James says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, he says, so is faith without works. James says, just as your body ceases to exist without the spirit, he said, so does your faith cease to exist without works. Faith is just not believing. Faith is characterized by works. And when we have a relationship with God, we should desire that our faith be perfected. We should desire that our faith be made complete. We should desire that we be called a friend of God. And we should desire for God to give us his final stamp of approval at the time of judgment. Otherwise, our faith is useless. Our faith is meaningless. Our faith is dead. Closing, C.S. Lewis said this, he said regarding the debate about faith and works, it's like asking which blade in a pair of scissors is most important. You see, in a pair of scissors, you need both blades in order for it to make it work. It's the same with our faith. In order for our faith to be what God wants it to be, we have to have faith and works. We can't have works without faith, and we can't have faith without works. Faith and works are inseparable. It's not enough to believe in God. It's not enough to say you know what to do and you know that it's right. Words and belief without action mean absolutely nothing. Faith by itself does not work. But instead, real faith creates works. And our actions become the evidence of the change that has taken place in our heart. We show our faith by what we do, not what we say or think. And if we say we have real faith, we are to prove it. And if we want to have the right kind of faith, faith that is alive, a faith that works, a faith that pleases God, a faith that declares us righteous before God at the final of judgment, our faith must be accompanied by works. And I think of Hebrews eleven six, where many think Paul wrote Hebrews. Paul wrote, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that word faith that is used in Hebrews eleven six is talking about a working faith, an active faith, not a passive faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. This morning as we close, I want you to think hard about this question. How would you describe your faith this morning? Is your faith pleasing to God? Is your faith more than a verbal profession? Is your faith more than an intellectual assertion? Or is your faith a commitment to action? Is your faith dead or alive? Maybe you're here this morning and you need Jesus. 
I'd love to show you how you can give your life to Christ and how real faith by receiving Him as your Savior and Lord. And, and maybe you're here this morning and your faith to you has just been that verbal profession. Maybe it's just been that intellectual assertion. Maybe this morning you need to make a real commitment to Christ. Or maybe this morning you've put your faith in Christ, but you know that your faith is not pleasing to God. Your faith is not growing. Your faith is not maturing. And you know if you were to stand before God right now that you would not receive his final stamp of approval. And maybe you need to come this altar this morning or, or stay where you are and just say this morning, God, I want to have a faith that works. I'm tired of my faith not working. I want to have a faith that's pleasing to you. Or maybe you're here this morning there's other decisions God's asking you to make. Maybe to join our church. Maybe it's baptism. Maybe it's a full-time to Christian ministry. Whatever it is, I want you to respond in obedience to God this morning. But I want you to be real with God and real with yourself because God knows the condition of your faith. You might be able to fool me. You might be able to fool others, but you can't fool God. God knows the condition of your faith. So as we have this time of commitment, this time of invitation, I want you to really examine is your faith pleasing to God this morning? Not based on what I've said, but based on God's word said, that our faith must be accompanied by works. Respond in him in obedience this morning. We're going to pray. If you need to come this altar this morning, it'll be open for you. If you need to talk to me or pray with me, I'll be down front. But make sure you leave this morning knowing that you have a faith that's pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning and just thank you for your word and for your truth. Father, I just thank you for the challenge that James places in front of us. God, we know that in order to, to be made right before you, we have to come before you and say, God, I'm a sinner. God, I want to give my life to you. I want to commit my life to you. I want you to come into my life and be my Lord and my Savior. But God, may we understand that faith doesn't stop there. Real faith, Father, must be accompanied by works. We must live out our faith. And Father, I pray if there are those here this morning who, who have placed their faith in you, but they're not living out their faith. God, I pray this morning they say, I want my faith to be pleasing to God. I want my life to show that I've placed my faith and my trust in Him. Father, maybe there are those here this morning who, who maybe think they had real faith, but they don't. Maybe they've just verbally professed you, or maybe, Lord, they've just intellectually acknowledged you. Father, may they understand there's more to faith than that. Because even demons have that kind of faith, Scripture says. God, may we just commit to have a faith that honors you and pleases you. May we desire to live for you, God, and be a light in a world that's lost and without hope and needs you. Father, just work in hearts this morning. May each of us respond in obedience. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. If you need to come, come, but let's stand as we sing. Oh, to Jesus I surrender. Oh, to Him I freely give. I will ever run. Trust them and 
At this time, those who may have children with ex an extended teaching care, if you all would please a, um, go get your children, uh, that would be great. We're going to have a special call business meeting after the offering. Guests, we welcome you to stay, to listen. Uh, the reason for the special call business meeting is to uh, vote on Dwayne Abrahamson becoming the next senior pastor here at Red House Baptist Church. So guests, you're more than welcome to stay. We welcome you to stay. That would be great. Um, so, uh, but we are trying to get the extended teacher care workers in here for the vote. So if you have children, if you'd go uh, get those children, that would be great. And uh, I'll pray, and then we'll take up offering. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of offering, this time of worship. We've been here this morning with Sunday school and Dwayne's message and the, uh, the praise band and, and leading us in worship, Heavenly Father. And let us be a church that always wants to come to you and worship. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for this time of offering. In Jesus' name, amen. I know we still have some extended care workers that need to get into the a, uh, sanctuary, but while we're waiting on them, we can go ahead and start handing out the ballots. The deacon body will be handing out ballots um, for right now. Then we'll get the meeting started once we get everybody in here and everybody has a ballot. Let me remind you, members that have been baptized by immersion, that are members of this church, no matter their age, are allowed to vote. That's for our Constitution. They're allowed to vote, so we have members vote. Guests, we welcome you to stay, uh, but uh, yeah, please do not get a ballot. Thank you.
Jones, do you mind to check to see if they're extended? Here, I believe, here's some of our workers. Check to see if they're all in, and then we'll make the motion. We have just one more moment. People are still coming in. Does anybody need a ballot? Any member need a ballot? We'll take him up yet, Mark. Do we? Yeah, gotcha. Thank you. Here comes Linda. One more person, not two more people before we make the motion. We are good, Linda? Okay. So um, I'll open the business meeting up in a uh, prayer that opened the special call business meeting. Uh, Bob Stevens uh, will make the motion, um, and then we'll go from there. Uh, then we'll, at the end, we will take the ballots up. The deacon body will take the ballots up by the uh, offertory plate. And as I mentioned before, we'll do a count. Um, and then uh, we'll come back in and make the announcement of what that uh, count of the ballots are. So let me uh, open us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of business. Let everything, anything and everything that we do, Heavenly Father, bring honor and glory to you. For this is for about your kingdom, about extending your kingdom, Heavenly Father. For us being the church that you call us to be and the disciples that you call us to be as individuals. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. The deacon body would like to call as our next senior pastor, Dwayne Abrahamson. We will need a second. Second by Tim Armstrong. Any discussion? We have a question. Okay, so we have we have a question on the floor. That is a uh, we need a second for the question. We not we kind of. Oh, we've started doing that a little bit better. I have a second for the question. A question is that we go straight to vote. We start collecting votes. Second by Keith Park. Any discussion on the question that we go straight to vote? All those in favor, uplifted hand. Any, any opposed, like sign? All right, we're ready to vote. Uh, deacons will come and collect the ballots.
All right, while you're voting, let us play a song for you, and you can join in as we go.